Greetings, film pals. I bid you welcome to The Cinematic Crypt, a movie podcast hosted by Movie John's Old Sport and Classic Coroner, Rosalie Kicks, me. Each episode, I travel six feet under and pry open a coffin of one of my favorite Hollywood corpses and perform a post-watch examination of one of their forgotten films. Lend me your ears and listen along as I summon the spirits of Hollywood's dearly departed and uncover your next favorite film from the grave. Before we descend into the crypt, I will begin with reading my obituary, a notice of what I have been up to since we last spent time together. As I record this episode, I'm about to embark on a very important week, my goblins and ghouls. This week, I have taken time away from my day job to spend time living the dream, so to speak, and that is working as a writer. I'll be locked away in my laboratory, toiling away under the pale moonlight. I am a mixed bag of emotions, from excited to anxious to even a bit scared. I've never given myself dedicated time to just work on my projects without other distractions looming in the shadows or the disturbances of my nine to five. I have created a task list of sorts to help me focus on the items I want to accomplish. I shall now share that list with you, my goblins and ghouls. For starters, I'd like to create an outline for the amusement park slasher script that I told you about previously that I will be working on with my friend, Katie McBrown, as our follow-up to Pizza Man. Secondly, I'm hopeful that by completing this outline, I will start the script and maybe get about five to 10 pages completed. Third, I would like to create the ultimate summer cabin mixtape, something that will surely be needed for Joe Bob Briggs Jamboree in July that I will be attending with some of my fellow film pals. Now don't fret, goblins and ghouls. I'll figure out a way to make the mixtape digital so that you too can enjoy it this summer. Fourth, there is some busy work that I need to get done for Movie John that I've been putting off, so I'm hoping to work on that as well. And lastly, I presently have a top secret project in the works that may or may not consist of bringing Cinematic Crypt to a live video format. Mwah. I, of course, will share with you how my week goes as working as a writer. And in the meantime, wish me luck, my little crypt dwellers. In other news from the graveyard, the short slasher flick Pizza Man, which was co-written and co-directed by your favorite little gravedigger and my film pal, Katie McBrown, has been getting sent out to film festivals all over the world. We are hopeful for its premiere sometime soon in the future. As we await to learn the fate of our film, I find myself filled with this incredible feeling of hope. At the present time, I am finishing a suspense thriller novel, The Shadows, by Alex North. And in one of the chapters, there is a passage in which the character speaks about submitting his short story to a contest in hopes that it would be selected and published. He describes the feeling that he has as he awaits their response to see if his writing was picked, and how his imagination runs wild with the possibilities. He also mentions how that all comes to a crash once the rejection letter is received. All those hopes and dreams go out the window, and how sometimes it feels more exciting just waiting for the response, because it's during that time when you're filled with confidence and optimism. Well, goblins and ghouls, this is essentially how I feel at this very moment. In particular, with one of the festivals that Katie and I submitted to, it would be an absolute dream to have our film premiere there. And well... 
I can't keep myself from getting too excited about it. If we don't get in, of course I'll move on. But right now, it is so nice to have that vision of Katie and I at the drive-in showing the world our little flick. It's the dreams that keep me going and remind me that it isn't coffin time quite yet. Mwah. When the night falls, when the shadows become deep and black, the silent pall of evil settles on the earth. Who dares to search? Who dares to see what walks in the night? If you dare, welcome to Nightmare. Goblins and Ghouls, you just heard the opening of Nightmare Theater, hosted by Gorgon, otherwise known as William Joseph Camfield. Crypt Dwellers, before we get to our main attraction, let's spend some time in the cemetery, shall we? Let's pay respects to horror hosts from days gone by in a segment I've entitled Grave Time. This evening, we shall visit the gravesite of the gothic nightmare, Gorgon. In episode 25, I discussed the introduction of shock theater in the late 1950s. It was during this time when every local TV station employed a goblin or ghoul to host a program with the focus of showing classic horror flicks from the 1930s and 40s. Something to note, goblins and ghouls, was that not all of the horror hosts took a humorous approach to their hosting and instead saw their program as serious business. Gorgon was one of these creatures. Instead of spoofing the spooks, he tried to bring the horrific atmosphere and tone of the films to his TV set, or more appropriately, I should say, crypt. And in the coffin, not really a corpse at all, but Miss Lynn, a warm and living human being who helps us out weekly in our little escapades. And in the mummy case, not really the mummy of Caris. Where the real mummy is, I do not know. But to help you feel as though you had been to Egypt, we have called upon Mr. Carr for his services. And in the laboratory, you thought you saw the Frankenstein monster. Actually, my friends, only a man in a mask. Remove the mask and show them. It is only a trick. I say to remove the mask and show them. It is only a trick. Remove the mask. My friends, I do not understand. It is only an illusion. Stop it this instant. I demand, I command you to stop. My good friends, goodbye. Sleep well and have pleasant dreams. <laughs> he was a mysterious man with a ghoulish, pallid complexion and a prominent mole on his cheek. He donned a black cape and carried a candelabra that gave him a magical appearance. And he went by the name Gorgon, who was known for his long, penetrating laugh. The name Gorgon was derived from a French noun meaning wild, terrifying, repulsive, or petrifying. So basically, perfect, my goblins and ghouls. One may also be familiar with the name from Greek mythology, as it is a creature that had the ability to turn men into stone. Gorgon the horror host 
may not have been able to turn people into stone, but he did possess a voice that managed to be not just unique, but absolutely haunting. To help accentuate this characteristic, he utilized an effect for maximum eeriness. My trophy room brings me a great deal of comfort and amusement. And the dark nights are dark and lonely. I like to come here and sit, my friends, and meditate and dream that I am actually, actually taking part in the events which these mementos represent. The feeling of horror it gives me is almost ecstatic. Sometimes when the hour is late, I can sit here in my room and almost be hypnotized. Almost as though I were in the presence of an invisible ghost. <laughs> William Joseph Camfield was the chief writer at the station KFJZ-TV in Dallas-Fort Worth, Texas. And prior to this, he worked as a radio and TV director for the ad department at a local department store from 1949 to 1955. KFJZ was the only independent station in the Southwest at the time, and they snagged every syndicated movie and cartoon package that was available. After hearing of Zachary's success, they, of course, purchased the shock package as well. Camfield was given free reign in terms of the design and overall look and feel of the show. He went on to say, Since I have been an English major at TCU, I became enthralled with the gothic novel background of Frankenstein, Dracula, and the Wolfman works, and decided to play our show for authenticity rather than tongue-in-cheek. Before each show, the stage director and set man would view the movie to be screened so that something could be duplicated from the film, such as a major prop or set dressing, like a coffin with Dracula's crest, or a lantern from the Wolfman. Typically, Gorgon would open his show with a monologue, done in a style that Camfield referred to as gothic double talk, meaning much illusion and little substance. He believed it was the mood and atmosphere that led to terror, not the acts themselves, which he also felt defined the genre of gothic film. Shall we try a little change of pace tonight from our usual fare? Shall we see how humor can emerge from scenes of terror? How comedy can be found in the most horrible of circumstances? Shall we see what happens when spooks run wild? <laughs> Nightmare premiered live in September 1957 with a double feature starting at 8 p.m. and would continue to air on Saturday evenings. Up until 1959, the show would air live, at which time they then switched to videotaping. The program showed the classic universal horror films, such as Dracula, Frankenstein, and the sons and daughters of horror, like Dracula's Daughter and Son of Frankenstein. But it also dipped into some of the Warner Collection and MGM collections as well, such as House of Wax and The Pit 
and The Pendulum. Gorgon never featured sci-fi or murder mystery titles, as he really wanted the show's main focus to be that of the supernatural. In 1960, Nightmare was cut back to a single feature, and by 1962, the program was moved to Fridays at midnight. The program would later be moved back to Saturday and end in 1964, only to be revived for Halloween specials. Eventually, Bill would move to Denver to manage station KOTV and would make his last appearance as Gorgon in 1976 in Dallas, Texas, for a Halloween special in which he showed House of Wax. Over the corpse of his life, Bill would develop many on-screen personas, including a magician, a puppeteer, and a clown. One of his most popular personas was a character known as Icky Twerp, which was a host of a slam-bang theater, a children's program that presented cartoons and Three Stooges comedies. He would perform slapstick skits while donning masks or oversized cowboy hats, a striped suit, and horn-rimmed glasses. In doing my research, I once again turned to my book, Television Horror Movie Host, by Elena M. Watson. She mentioned that Bill made an appearance in Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory from 1971, but Goblins and Ghouls? I was not able to find him as credited. It has been a while since I watched this flick, but if I end up spotting him, I'll let you know. And you do the same. Bill would later admit in life that acting was not a main interest to him. He enjoyed more of the behind-the-scenes aspect of broadcasting and held various positions throughout his career. He would die in 1991 from brain cancer in his home in Fort Worth, Texas, but not before completing two screenplays and starting a newspaper column. William Camfield was known to say, My principal passion is writing. This is the type of last career you put off until you can make a good living doing something else. Which Gorgon? I understand this. Quite a bit, actually. For as I feel, I am now embarking on the journey of entering into my last career, a life of film. I could not have stumbled upon these words at a much better time, my goblins and ghouls, as I experiment with working as a writer this week. Mwah. I hope, my good friends, that you have enjoyed your visit to my trophy room tonight. I hope that you are able to see how my hobby completely captivates me. If you understand this, perhaps you will understand what I must now tell you. My friends, after tonight, I will go away on a very long and a very hard journey. Where I shall go, I do not know exactly, for I must search throughout the world for a particular trophy to add to my collection. A trophy so mysterious so unbelievable that I cannot even tell you what it is. <laughs> and now our feature presentation. All right, film pals, time to grab your cape and get comfortable with a cocktail. It is time for our regularly scheduled spooky program. Follow me, but watch your step as you descend down to the cinematic crypt. <laughs> Today's episode will mark the third entry in the series, Heavenly Mistakes. 
Through the course of this series, I have been examining films which a grave mistake or error was made by the afterworld. In episode 24, I uncovered the 1941 fantasy romantic comedy, Here Comes Mr. Jordan. The second film in the series, episode 25, featured the 1946 Pal and Pressburger Technicolor film, A Matter of Life and Death. This evening, I shall uncover and examine the 1947 film Down to Earth, starring Larry Parks, Roland Culver, James Gleason, Edward Everett Horton, and tonight's corpse of interest, Rita Hayworth. Gilda, are you decent? Me? Sure, I'm decent. Gilda, this is Johnny Farrell. Johnny, this is Gilda. So this is Johnny Farrell. I've heard a lot about you, Johnny Farrell. Really? Now, I haven't heard a word about you. Why, Ballard? I wanted to keep it as a surprise. Was it a surprise, Mr. Farrell? It certainly was. You should have seen his face. Did you tell him what I'm doing here, Bellin? No, I wanted to save that as a surprise, too. Hang on to your hat, Mr. Farrell. Gilda is my wife, Johnny. Mrs. Ballin Munson, Mr. Farrell. Is that all right? Rita Hayworth was born Margarita Carmen Cancino on October 17, 1918, in Brooklyn, New York. Rita came from a family of dancers and studied dancing herself and would join her parents on stage at the age of eight years old in 1926. This would mark her first film as she makes an appearance in a Vitaphone short, La Fiesta, with the Cancino family, although she herself went uncredited. She would later be signed by Fox studio head Winfield Sheehan at the age of 16 and make her film debut in 1935 in a Spencer Tracy picture entitled Dante's Inferno, in which she performed a dance sequence. From there, she would be in several other motion pictures, mostly playing small bit parts under the name Rita Cancino. After just five small roles, she was dropped by Fox Studios, but with some exploitive efforts by her first husband, Edward Judson, he helped her land a new contract at Columbia Pictures, which is where studio head Harry Cohn recommended she change her last name to Hayworth, being that he felt Cancino sounded too Spanish. Hayworth happened to be her mother's maiden name. It was also Harry that advised her to raise her hairline with the use of electrolysis, a method that was used to remove hair and drastically altered her appearance. He felt that her appearance, as he would say, was too exotic, which would leave her to fewer roles. This guy was quite a gem, my goblins and ghouls. The studio also advised her to change the color of her natural hair, which was black, to what is now her famously well-known red locks. She would go on to have a supporting role in the 1939 picture, Only Angels Have Wings, in which she played the character of Judy McPherson. However, she would see her first big success when Columbia loaned her out to Warner Brothers to star in the 1941 film, The Strawberry Blonde. It was, however, her wonderful and superb dancing in the 1941 film, You'll Never Get Rich, in which she co-starred with the illustrious Fred Astaire that really put her on the map and made her a bona fide Hollywood star. 
Fred Astaire would later remark how talented Rita was, as she would learn the most advanced dance routines quickly and be able to perform them without a single mistake. Some legends say that the Margarita cocktail was named for her during a stint in which she danced under her real name in a Tijuana, Mexico nightclub. You are never lovelier. That's the title of our big new musical at Columbia. Starring Fred Astaire, Rita Hayworth, and Adolf Manjou. As well as Xavier Cugat, the Roomba King, and his world-famous orchestra. Playing some of the loveliest music ever written by Jerome Kern and Johnny Mercer. All in one glittering whirl of gaiety, romance, and melody. Fred loves Rita, but he's definitely off on the wrong foot with Papa Manjou. You do something to me that results in the most fascinating dislike I have ever had. And Mama seems a wee bit careless with Rita's best bow. He thinks it's real. It's perfectly harmless. Oh, I'm sure it is. <laughs> Laugh away your blues. Put on your dancing shoes for these brand new hit tunes. Already tops with radio's millions. You were never lovelier. You were never so fair. Fred and Rita would go on to make one other picture, the 1942 film You Were Never Lovelier, which apparently they rehearsed their dance steps in a nearby funeral parlor, as Columbia Studios did not have space for them to utilize. Rita would later go on to say that the pictures she made with Fred were the jewels of her life. A film that many recognize Rita from, though, is the 1946 noir picture, Gilda, in which she plays a femme fatale opposite Glenn Ford, who, I must add, she knocked out two of his teeth during a fight scene in the film. In one of her memorable scenes from the film, in which she does a strip tease in a strapless black satin sheath dress with a long side slit and extra long gloves, the costume designer, Jean Lewis, designed that gown, which truly helped cement the idea of the femme fatale. Later, when Rita was asked what held up the dress, she stated, two things. While Gilda was still in theaters, it was reported that the atomic bomb, which was scheduled to be tested, would dawn her image in reference to her bombshell status. Hayworth was deeply upset by this, and didn't see it as a compliment as it was intended. She was married to Orson Welles at the time, and he recalled her being filled with rage when learning about the bomb, saying he never saw her angrier. I don't know what this means, or even if it has meaning, but I can't resist mention of the fact that this much can be revealed concerning the appearance of tonight's atom bomb. It will be decorated with a photograph, a sizable likeness, of a young lady named Rita Hayworth. Not long ago, I watched quite another sort of young lady paint her lips with something called, over the counter, the atom lipstick. The case of the cosmetic being fashioned according to the popular conceptions of the original war engine. I'm sure you won't need to be told that Miss Hayworth is not one to use such a thing or to hold it as anything less than a very hideous conceit. Her face is not on the atom bomb then by her own choosing, but by election of the flyers who will drop the bomb and who are clearly for business according to their tastes. As regards selection, I find their taste beyond reproach, but the bomb dropping itself had better be worthy of the accompanying photograph. Is this Faustus' claim of Helen of Troy? 
The face that launched a thousand ships and burnt the topless towers of Ilium. Well, I want a better toast, a better boast for Rebecca. I want my daughter to be able to tell her daughter that grandmother's picture was on the last atom bomb ever to explode. After Gilda's hit at the box office, unfortunately, she would suffer a downturn to her career. She continued to make pictures, but they would never find the same success as she held previously. At one point, Rita was known to say, men fell in love with Gilda, but they wake up with me. Thank you, Mr. Farrell. My husband tells me you're a great believer in luck. We make our own luck, Johnny and I. I'll have to try that sometime. I'll try it right now. Tell him to come to dinner with us tonight, Balin. It's an order. Come along, Johnny. We let Gilda get dressed. Look your best, my beautiful. This will be the casino's first glimpse of you. I look my very best, Balin. I want all the hired help to approve of me. Glad to have met you, Mr. Farrell. His name's Johnny, Gilda. Oh, I'm sorry. Johnny is such a hard name to remember. And so easy to forget. Rita would go on to make another noir picture with her husband Orson in 1947, The Lady from Shanghai. This film would be a failure at the box office, but would find itself critically acclaimed. Harry Cohn blames the film's terrible performance at theaters due to Rita's famous red hair being chopped off and bleached to a platinum blonde for the role, something he was not consulted about. Her personality was often described as shy, quiet, and demure. It was only at the word action in which one would witness the explosive personality and charisma. Rita herself would say that she often suffered from an inferiority complex and was very much unlike the characters she would play. Rita would marry five times over the course of her life, most notably to Orson Welles. The two married on September 7, 1943, during the run of the Mercury Wonder Show. None of Rita's colleagues knew about the wedding until she announced it the day before. Orson and Rita would have a daughter together, Rebecca, born in December 1944. The two had a hard marriage, though. Rita felt that Orson did not want to be tied down and did not show an interest in having a home together. On November 10, 1947, they were divorced. It was in 1948 when she married Prince Ali Khan. The wedding to Prince Khan received much press due to her prominence in Hollywood, but she received much backlash as during her engagement with Khan, she was still legally married to Wells. Her marriage to Khan would unfortunately end in 1953 as Rita struggled to find her footing abroad, and it was suspected that Khan had been unfaithful to her. They would have one child together, Yasmin Yaga Khan. Rita made a few forgettable films in the 1960s, and after this time, her career essentially came to an end, with her final flick being The Wrath of God in 1972. It was in 1960, at the age of 42, when she began to suffer from what would later be known as Alzheimer's disease, a condition of hers that went undiagnosed until 1980. When her illness was made public in 1981, she essentially became the first public face to have the disease, which would lead to ensuring many future patients to not go undiagnosed. This caused Rita much hardship in terms of her acting abilities, and for the last years of her life, she was cared for by her daughter, Yasmin, until her death at 68 on May 14, 1987, in New York City. Rita is credited as being in 66 films, many of which I frankly was 
unaware of until I conducted my research, Goblins and Ghouls. One film entitled The Money Trap, in which she plays a character, Rosalie Kenny, has now been added to my watch list. Today we will discuss one of her forgotten flicks. It may not be the best movie, but Rita makes it worth your time. The 1947 fantasy romantic comedy musical, Down to Earth, was said to be one of Rita Hayworth's least favorite films. And well, Goblins and Ghouls, I'm not surprised. Down to Earth is not a picture that comes with high recommendation. However, as with most films, there is still a reason to watch. In the case of this picture, it's for Rita. Hayworth stars as the muse Terpsichore. Within Greek mythology, there are nine muses, said to be the inspiration goddesses of literature, science, and the arts. Terpsichore happens to be the goddess of dance and chorus. While in heaven, she gets a bee in her bonnet about a play that is being produced by a Broadway playwright, Danny Miller, played by Larry Parks. The play portrays Terpsichore as, well, a man-crazy fool that is fighting for the attention of a pair of Air Force pilots who just so happened to crash on the Greek mountain, Mount Parnassus. Terpsichore goes to Mr. Jordan for help, requesting that he grant her permission to go to Earth and set the story straight. Goblins and Ghouls? You may recall from episode 24 that Down to Earth is a sequel of sorts to the flick Here Comes, Mr. Jordan. Both films were directed by Alexander Hall, and they also star some of the same cast members, such as James Gleason and Edward Everett Horton. The shoes of Mr. Jordan this time around have been filled by Roland Culver, who doesn't even come close to the performance of Claude Rains. So what I'm guessing was no one's surprise. I want to go down to Earth and get into a theatrical production. Obviously, you don't know our business here. We bring people up from Earth. We don't take them down. You shut up, you. Uh, I mean, well, you see, Mr. Jordan, I know you like to help people. And this young man, Mr. Jordan, the producer, is all mixed up. He doesn't understand a goddess. Now, if you would help me, I could play the goddess. Then his show would succeed and he'd make a lot of money, you see. Isn't that a good idea, Mr. Jordan? I must say it's extremely kind of you, my dear. But I'm afraid we can't meddle in the financial affairs of every man on Earth. We just don't have the staff for it. There, you see? Oh, but I... Mr. I, Jordan has spoken. But, Mr. Jordan, it seems such a pity. Oh, I'm certain this Mr. Miller is a most deserving person. And I only want to help. Miller, what is his given name? Daniel. Miller, Daniel. Uh, if you'll just wait here a moment. To accompany her on her journey to Earth, Mr. Jordan sends Messenger 7013. This role is once again reprised by Edward Everett Horton, who played the same character in Here Comes Mr. Jordan. It is Messenger 7013's responsibility to keep an eye on Terpsichore and try to ensure her adventure is a success. Upon arriving at the New York Playhouse, it is worse than Terpsichore could ever imagine, and she decides to waste little time taking action. As the cast is rehearsing, she takes it upon herself to jump on stage and make her move. She quickly catches the eye of producer Danny Miller. She's magic. It's fantastic. That's Terpsichore. What? After a quick introduction, it is decided that Terpsichore will take over the show as the lead. When asked who her agent is, in stumbles Max Corkle, played by James Gleason, 
who, you probably remember Goblins and Ghouls, was the manager of boxer Joe Pendleton, played by Robert Montgomery, and here comes Mr. Jordan. Well, Max is now an agent of sorts, and as for her name, well, Terpsichore just so happens to spot a cat and takes on the name Kitty. Kitty Pendleton, of course. It does not take long for Terpsichore to start sharing her disdain with Danny regarding the story of the play and informing him that his depictions of the character of, well, herself, are wrong. Of course, this is not met with open arms by Danny, and it leads to quite the confrontation. Why, you lead people to believe the show's about Terpsichore, but it's not. Why, they'll laugh at you. She's not at all like you've characterized her. Look, I made this whole show up out of thin air. It's all a fairy tale, and Terpsichore's any cockeyed thing I say she is. I'd be careful, Mr. Daniel Miller. She might hear you say that, and she might not like it. Oh, she might not like it, huh? I suppose she might come down out of the clouds and slap me right across the face. She might, if you continue to paint her as a cheap man chasing trollop. Now get this, once and for all. If I say Terpsichore's a trollop, she's a trollop. Danny, of course, can't resist Kitty's charms. I mean, come on, she's Rita Hayworth. Who could? He agrees to make some changes to the play. Goblins and ghouls. I would love to tell you what was going on in this play, but frankly, I have no idea. Even with the changes, it's still a mess. And frankly, I don't know if anything really could have fixed it. Not even having Rita in it could. But I digress. So they end up performing a dress rehearsal in none other than Philadelphia, the city of your favorite little gravedigger. And unfortunately, it is not met with open arms. We didn't even get enough applause to take bows. Half a dozen of them walked out during the first act. Well, you can't tell, Danny. They might have been people who had appointments, like, like doctors or something. Thanks, Eddie. Speaking of doctors, I think it is time, crypt dwellers, for our spooky intermission of sorts. Let's pay a visit to the morgue, shall we? To chat cadavers with my fellow classic coroner, Dr. Ashley Jane Carruthers. Together, we shall slice open and examine character actor Edward Everett Horton, an actor who specialized in playing eccentric and unusual people. Let's all go to the That's odd. No, I tell you no. I won't have you bringing some goblins and ghouls in for supper. By candlelight, I suppose, in the cheap erotic fashion of young men with cheap erotic minds. Oh my. Well, I guess Dr. Carruthers is occupied today with mother. I don't want to disturb her, since we did make the trek here. We might as well enjoy the surroundings. The weather couldn't be more perfect. So what do you say, goblins and ghouls? We take a stroll in the graveyard. Oh, look whose tombstone I've stumbled upon. The character corpse of interest, Edward Everett Horton Jr. Which reminds me, fellow crypt dwellers, I recently received a correspondence in the postal box from one of you, which I would like to share with you now. Dear Cinematic Crypt, please, 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 Edward Everett Horton Jr., 
Is there anyone who has been in more films? Which of them from 1922 to 1971 was the best? And that distinctive voice. Please crack that coffin soon. Well, you're in luck, my fellow crypt dweller, for I just so happen to be right here with Edward. Now, I shall begin with discussing five characteristics that make this particular corpse a character. One, his quavering voice. Two, he would play a bit of a nervous Nelly and often exclaim, oh dear. He was known for his special variation of the double take, in which he would react to something which would be followed by a delayed, more extreme reaction. Number four, his distinctive facial features. And number five, his tall stature. He towered over six foot. I love the place. Oh, if father could only see with what uh, eclat I am upholding the professional dignity of the firm. Guy, I'm going to stay here and wait for my client. Without me, Egbert, I'm going up to my room. I'll see you later. Huh? Well, I'll be here. <clears throat> Pardon, you, uh, you rang, sir? Who, me? Yes, why, my dear fellow, what is there here to ring with? Pardon, sir, that's just a figure of speech. Oh, oh, uh-huh. Well, bring me, uh, uh, let me have a... Uh, there, there, you see, your figure of speech has made me forget entirely what I wanted. Could it have been that you required crumpets? No, no, no. I never ring for crumpets. Would you be the kind of man who'd ring for a toasted scone? Scone? Well, now, uh... No, no. But try me again. Well, then, can you... Can you imagine yourself with a hankering for a nice gooseberry tart? Oh, what an acid thought, please. No crumpets, no scones, no gooseberry tarts. Well, that lands both of us in a cul-de-sac, doesn't it? Of course it does. I knew it would. You know, I hate to leave you like this. You torn with doubts and me with my duty undischarged. Oh, well, cheer up, old man, cheer up. It'll come to me. Was it animal or vegetables? No. Well, that, that leaves us mineral, don't it, sir? Now, sir, was it a bit of half and half, a noggin of ale, a pipkin of porter, a stoop of stout, or a beaker of beer? Tea. Tea? <laughs> well, isn't it a small world, sir? That clip you just heard was a famous scene from the Astaire Rogers 1934 flick, The Gay Divorcee, in which Edward Everett Horton plays Egbert Pinky Fitzgerald, a bumbling lawyer. One could say that Edward Everett Horton appeared in almost every Hollywood comedy that was made in the 1930s. His filmography shows a total of 180 credits. To answer our Crypt Dweller's question, some of my favorite appearances include the character of Mr. Witherspoon in Arsenic and Old Lace, Horace Hardwick in Top Hat, and a most recent watch for me, Bluebeard's Eighth Wife, in which he played the father of Nicole de Louise, played by Claudette Colbert. Edward was born in Brooklyn, New York, March 18, 1886, and lived until the age of 84 when he died on September 29th 
1970, of cancer. His career in acting started in the theater in 1906, and he later made his film debut in 1922 during the silent film era. Unlike some of his other fellow actors, Edward had no trouble making the transition to talkies, even with his crackling voice. It was his father that would recommend he use his full name, Edward Everett Horton, in his career, as he felt anyone could be Edward Horton, but nobody could be Edward Everett Horton. It was from 1932 to 1938 that he would often partner with Ernst Lubitsch, and then later, Frank Capra. One of my favorite Lubitsch films he appeared in was the 1933 pre-code comedy film, Designed for Living, in which a woman, played by Miriam Hopkins, can't decide which man she is in love with, so she agrees to live with them both, played by Gary Cooper and Frederick March. This flick is a howling good time, and Edward plays Max Plunkett, a sleazy ad executive who finds himself obsessed with Gilda, played by Miriam Hopkins. If you haven't seen this flick, I highly recommend it. Which honestly makes me realize it is quite hard to select my favorite appearance from Edward. He kind of just pops out of nowhere sometimes. In terms of his role in Down to Earth, I found his performance in Here Comes Mr. Jordan to be more memorable. In Down to Earth, he often feels as if he's just making a cameo appearance, whereas in Here Comes Mr. Jordan, his role seemed much more important to the story. I did, however, find a little something he shared about working with Rita Hayworth, that I did want to share with you, my goblins and ghouls. Edward said, She was so sweet and hardworking, she asked me to watch her work out a dance routine and go over her lines with her. I'd tell her little things and she'd whisper, Don't tell the director, please. She was so modest and affectionate. Edward would never marry and rarely discussed his private life. He acted all throughout his life, ranging from radio shows, film, television, to plays. I think it's time now that I tuck Edward back in. It sure was a nice visit. But before we go, I leave you now with an interview he conducted with Betty Rogue when he starred in a production of The Fantastics, performed at Memorial Hill in Dayton, Ohio. Well, you're always everyone's favorite, Mr. Horton. What do you have planned now when you go back to California? Well, I'm not going back till Labor Day because right after I finish here, I go with Mr. Monk to a very nice theater at Traverse City. That's in Michigan. Mm -hmm. It's a lovely theater, and I played there four times, and we're going to do a play called What Did We Do Wrong, which I saw in New York last season with Paul Ford. It has to do with a father and mother, and they can't understand what they did, that they would have a hippie son who wound up in jail in college, you see. And uh, the son tells him in no uncertain terms. So. Uh, when I saw it in New York about the middle of the second act, the hippie was so seemingly so right that I thought, I'm not going to stand for this. I'm going to get out of here. This is not, but pretty soon <laughs> the father takes over, so it's not so bad. Pretty good. It's a lot of fun to do. Mr. Horton, yeah. you look marvelous. I do? You No, you really do. Oh. Um, do you have any special diet or any special uh, thing that, that you like to do that really keeps you going? Mm-hmm. I diet all through the meal until I come to the dessert. <laughs> and I eat them all. Is that your weakness? <laughs> yes. Well, mostly chocolate. You know, I, uh, I, I, I think when you get to be my age, you don't eat too much. You know, you don't change. And you are the way you're going to be for the next 30 years, I hope. Yeah. No, we're not going to talk about age now. Oh, I don't mind. Certainly I don't you mind. have, don't have done uh, remarkably well, and we have always enjoyed seeing you. It's a treat. Mm to have you in Dayton. Thank mm -hmm. you very much, Mr. Horton. Oh, thank you. Thank you.
And now, on with the show. Welcome back, my goblins and ghouls. I hope you enjoyed that brief intermission to the morgue. Sorry Dr. Carruthers wasn't available today. Hopefully she'll be back in the next episode. We return for the conclusion of my examination of Down to Earth, starring the corpse of interest, Rita Hayworth. Good morning, everybody. What's wrong with you people? Why is everybody so glum? Haven't you read the notices? No. Why? She hasn't read the notices. Swinging the muses, although lovely in spots, resembles a Bach festival and should have been presented at Symphony Hall, where the audience is at least forewarned so that they can sleep through the performance. And listen to this. As for myself, I can take about 20 minutes of Greek classic, but two hours would get anybody down. How dare they? What do they know of the arts? I see it as a great triumph. We've given something beautiful to the theater. Yeah, our blood. But there's a line at the box office all the way down the street. They're the people who bought tickets in advance, asking for their money back. We had a great show. You butted in and made it so darn highbrow. Highbrow? <laughs> I was warned about your country. How can you mix art with jive and baseball and hot dogs? Oh, get her. The show busts so she don't live here anymore. <laughs> with the dress rehearsal going terribly, Kitty and Danny are both at one another's throats. Kitty actually walks off the set and now seeks Mr. Jordan as she wants to go back to heaven. Upon the appearance of Mr. Jordan, he informs her that she can't go back. At least not yet. He tells her that Danny is in a bit of trouble and that everything, including his life, is riding on the success of the show. They go through like a flashback, so to speak. We see a night of gambling at a nightclub. Danny finds himself in way over his head. Unable to pay the money that is owed, he strikes a deal with the owner, a mobster of sorts, Mr. Mannion. Of course, Mr. Mannion, if anything should happen to me now, with all those witnesses out there, you'd be a cinch for the electric chair. Go on. On the other hand, you back the show and I'll guarantee it with a note. You haven't any money. What good is your note? Oh, this one's very good. It's a suicide note. A uh, suicide note? That's right. If the show fails, you can have one of your boys take care of me. Plant the note in my own handwriting on my body, you're in the clear with the police. Doesn't that appeal to your gambler's instinct? Much like Rita's reaction to learning this story, I too was shocked, my goblins and ghouls. I never would have predicted the story getting so dark. However, there seems to be many moments within this film that are a cause for a bit of head-scratching. With Danny's life hanging in the balance, Kitty agrees to stay on and do the show exactly as Danny sees it despite her own reservations. Oh, Danny, you've got to listen to me. What are you following me for? What are you after now? You still in love with me? I didn't realize what any of this meant to you. But now I do. And all I want to do is help. I'll do anything, anything you say. It's unimportant what you think of me. Do it for yourself, for the show. Please, Danny. You say you'll do anything I say? Yes, Daddy. You'll sing my way? Yes, Daddy. 
Dance my way? Yes, Danny. Wear anything I want you to wear? Yes, Danny. All right. So she becomes a bit of a yes man, and they perform the show to much success. So what next? Well, Messenger 7013 is the bearer of bad news. It is time to go back to the afterlife. As the film wraps up Goblins and Ghouls, I have to say I could not help but feel a bit overwhelmed. They throw a lot into this ending. Kitty being in love with Danny, despite not really showing any sort of relationship forming along the way. I mean, sure, she's Rita Hayworth, but I would have appreciated some canoodling or that sign that Danny was even interesting, for that matter. There is no way Rita would give him the time of day. Except in this story, Terpsichore, aka Kitty, aka Rita Hayworth, is ready to give it all up to have a simple family life with Danny. Good grief. He's the sole owner of the gambling establishment now, at least until the police catch up with him. How dreadful. Perhaps. But if the show had failed, he would have murdered Danny Miller one hour ago. So you see, Kitty, that's why it was necessary for you to stay until now. It isn't necessary any longer. But it is. It is because... Because it's different now. You saved Danny's life. That's all we had for you to do. I don't care. I don't care. I love him and I want to stay. It wasn't meant to be, Kitty. Your mission is accomplished and now you must return. That's what we agreed upon. But I don't want it that way anymore. Please, Mr. George. Please. I don't want to be a goddess. I just want to be a human being. I want to get married and, and have a home and be with Danny. In the end, I kid you not, Kitty ends up witnessing a murder, but with getting sent back to heaven, who is there to pick up the pieces? That's right, goblins and ghouls. Max Corkle, her agent, who truly comes off as a loon when trying to explain everything to the authorities. But the guy was invisible. How could he tell you there was going to be a murder? Mr. Jordan told her and she told me. Kitty Pendleton was at the scene of the murder and hasn't been seen since. Where is she now? Mr. Jordan took her back. Oh, now I suppose she's living up in the clouds in a civilization that never even existed. That's right, that's just where she is. Looks like we'll have to cart this guy off to the nut factory. Wait a minute, I'm innocent. I tell you, I never saw the girl before that first day. She came in and flung her arms around my neck and she said, Max, darling, just think they took me out of the course and gave me the lead. I'm going to play Terpsichore, and I want you to be my agent. This movie is a lot, my goblins and ghouls. However, I still think it is worth a watch for Rita alone. The production design and costumes aren't too shabby either. And overall, it's just a silly good time. The question is, did Heaven truly make a mistake by sending Terpsichore to meddle with the play? Well, my fellow crypt dwellers... I think I'll leave that up to you to decide when you watch the film. Mwah. The title Down to Earth would be used for the comedy film Down to Earth in 2001 starring Chris Rock, which essentially was a remake of Here Comes Mr. Jordan. Down to Earth would also be remade as Xanadu in 1980 starring Olivia Newton-John, Michael Beck, and Gene Kelly, which also did poorly at the box office, but would later become a cult classic. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you're interested in checking out this flick, it is available for rent via a quick search of the internets. 
I personally found a DVD on eBay for a fair price and recommend you check there as well if you are a physical media type. In my next episode, I will wrap the series featuring Heavenly Mistakes by examining the 1943 film Heaven Can Wait. I will uncover the corpse of Don Amici and will hopefully be joined by my fellow classic coroner, vampire's cousin, Dr. Ashley Jane Carruthers, to autopsy character corpse Lade Krager. That is unless Mother decides to drop in at the morgue again. Mwah. Hope you tune in. Until then, please make sure to subscribe to the show on iTunes or anywhere you snag pods. Give us a rating and review to help other goblins and ghouls find the show. If it is a kind review, I may even read it on air. Take note, goblins and ghouls. A raving review may keep you from finding an early grave. So leave a review or send us an email. Don't be a stranger. I want to know what you think. Drop your favorite little gravedigger a line at cinematiccrypt at gmail.com. If you have a suggestion for the show or a corpse you want me to dig up, let me know. You can also reach me on Twitter and Instagram at cinematiccrypt or via postal mail. I will always write back and include a personalized epitaph. You can write to Attention Movie John, P.O. Box 20172, Philadelphia, PA 19145. My only request is that you don't send me any animal brains. Shout out to my Canadian film pal and fellow classic coroner, Dr. Ashley Jane Carruthers, for providing and creating a lot of the tunes you hear on this program. Also thanks to fellow movie genre, the Hollywood hunk, Hugo Marmuji, for the rad Cinematic Crypt logo. And if you can't get enough of my soothing voice, make sure to check out I Saw in a Movie, a weekly advice podcast that goes to the cinema for the answer that I co-host with my film pal, Ryan Silverstein. And because I don't like to sleep, you can find your favorite little gravedigger on yet another show with my fellow filmmaking pal, Katie McBrown, on the show entitled Best Friends Forever. Each episode, we invite you to our slumber party where we gab about a movie featuring the heartthrob of the month. All of these shows are part of the Movie John Podcast Network, which you can find more information about at moviejohn.com under MJ Podcasts. You can also subscribe to our print quarterly movie publication. Our spring 2021 issue is now shipping to mailboxes everywhere. This quarter's theme is foreign to me. Gain a new perspective within the pages of Movie John, available for purchase now at moviejohn.com shop. And if you're so inclined and want to support Movie John, please visit our Patreon page, which is patreon.com slash moviejohn. Never know how much I love you. Never know how much I care. When you put your arms around me I get a fever that's so hard to bear You give me fever When you kiss me, fever When you hold me tight Fever In the morning A fever all through the night It is now time to close the coffin And here I leave you to rest with my latest epitaph My tombstone quote Compliments of Max Corkle Leave me alone. Let me alone. I'm innocent, I tell ya. I had nothing to do with it. Goblins and ghouls, 
How could I possibly commit murder when I am six feet under, tucked in warmly in my bunk? Mwah. Goodbye, film pals. When you kiss them fever, if you live, you learn. Fever, till you sizzle. What a lovely way to burn.